Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. If you are enjoying these studies, help us get the message out and share them with your friends. Remember to support Beth Emanuel with your tithes and offerings by clicking on the Donate tab at BethEmmanuel.org. Last week, we launched a study of the Antichrist, the shadowy arch-villain of the end times. He has several different names. Paul referred to him as Man of Lawlessness and Son of Destruction. The Diriki called him World Deceiver. The Apocalypse of Elijah referred to him as the Son of Lawlessness. The Book of Revelation referred to him as the Beast. End Times teachers, with a focus on interpreting biblical prophecy, often obsess over identifying the Antichrist. They speculate over who Antichrist will be. The current Pope is usually a contender, as is the current President. Prince Charles once made the list, even before he became King Charles. Tyrants like Hitler work hard to campaign for the office. My interest in Antichrist tends to be more historical. We had lots of contenders for the title back in the first century. As the Master said, many false Christs and false prophets will arise. Most of them were not really on the level of Antichrist as much as they were failed messiahs, would-be saviors who tried to bring the redemption. For example, the book of Acts introduces us to Theodos and Judas of Galilee. Both of them made claims to be the Messiah. Josephus introduces us to a rebel leader named Menachem, who arose during the time of the first Jewish revolt. Rabbi Akiva declared Bar Kokhba as Messiah to lead the second Jewish revolt. These guys all turned out to be false messiahs and failed redeemers, revolutionaries, and the Shabtai Tzvi of the day, but none of them really fit the apocalyptic profile of world deceiver, son of destruction, lawless one, son of lawlessness, or beast. When the apostles used this type of language, they generally had in view world leaders in command of the nations. The prophecies in the book of Daniel are the original source behind the expectation of a coming Antichrist who will set up an abomination of desolation in the holy place and take up his seat in the temple. The visions in Daniel cast the little horn of Antichrist as a new Antiochus Epiphanes. He will be someone like the tyrant of the Hanukkah story. Antichrist will be a world leader who behaves toward the Jewish people the way that Antiochus behaved. Watch out for a tyrannical world leader who makes war against Israel and attempts to force the Jewish people to turn away from the Torah, the mitzvot, and the worship of God. When predicting the coming of the Antichrist, the Master made direct reference back to Daniel's prophecies and the abomination of desolation raised up in the holy place, as it says in Daniel 9.27, And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. And then in Mark 13, 14, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. 
then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The Antichrist then needs to be understood in this apocalyptic sense as a tyrannical world leader. He is the Gog in the expression Gog and Magog. During the first century, the serious contenders for the title were the Roman emperors, powerful world leaders in command of the nations who made war against the Jewish people and against the disciples of Yeshua and tried to compel them to abandon their faith. The Roman emperors demanded to be worshipped as gods, and when the believers refused to worship them, they put them to death. The Jewish people faced the depravities and capricious madness of the Roman emperor Gaius Caligula, a fierce contender for the title of Antichrist. He nearly accomplished the Antichrist's objective of setting up an image in the temple of God. Then came his equally depraved nephew, Nero, who initiated state-sponsored persecutions against the believers in Yeshua, burned them alive in his gardens, delighting in all sorts of depravities and sacrilegious desecrations of their bodies. He is the emperor who went to war against Judea and purposed to crush the Jewish nation. After him came his chief general, Vespasian, the Roman officer who led the war against Galilee and Judea. The traitor, Josephus, deemed Vespasian to be the fulfillment of the Bible's prophecies about a coming Messiah, and he told him so. Vespasian took up that mantle and started a purge of the house of David to kill any remaining contenders for the title. His son Titus followed suit, carried on the war against the Jewish people, crucified Jews until there were no trees left in Judea, burnt the temple, converted the Temple Mount into a sanctuary for Jupiter, and raised the idolatrous Roman standards over the holy place. Meanwhile, he was courting the Jewish queen, Bernice, hoping to marry her and make her his queen and make himself, by extension, a successor to the Herodian dynasty. Herod himself claimed the title King of the Jews, nominating himself for the office of Antichrist. Then came the younger brother of Titus, wicked Domitian, who renewed the purge of the house of David and ignited an aggressive persecution against believers in Yeshua, described in the book of Revelation. He demanded to be addressed with the salutation, My Lord and my God. The believers referred to him as Nero Redux, that is, Nero II. Last week, however, I introduced you to another track of early Messianic Jewish tradition about the Antichrist. We looked at what the apostles referred to as a coming time of apostasy. They called it a powerful delusion. The master said that under this delusion, even the elect might be deceived. We looked at the apocryphal book called Apocalypse of Elijah and saw that the early Jewish believers anticipated that the Antichrist would be something more than just an evil Roman emperor demanding to be worshipped. Instead, they anticipated an Antichrist who would wield satanic power to perform all the miracles of the Master. He would walk on water, heal the sick, make the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the dumb to speak, the lame to walk. Everything that the Master had done, except to raise the dead. 
They referred to Antichrist by the title Son of Lawlessness, but they they expected him to appear to the world as Jesus. We looked at the Torah's warnings in Deuteronomy 13 and saw how Moses warned about such a person. Moses predicted that false prophets might arise, performing signs and miracles and wonders, even accurately predicting the future. He said that if they turned the Jewish people away from the Torah and commandments, away from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk, or if they lured you to worship other gods, they must be considered false prophets, even if they did miracles, signs, and wonders. And in the previous teaching... We discussed how the Jesus presented by Replacement Theology fits the description of the type of false prophet Moses warned against in Deuteronomy 13. We saw how the warning in Deuteronomy 13 explains why the Jewish people cannot accept the claims of Christianity under Replacement Theology. The missionaries come preaching to the Jewish people, Jesus performed miracles to prove who he is, and he sets you free from the law. Turn aside from the Torah now and receive him and worship him as God. From the perspective of the Torah, then, the Jesus character proclaimed by most of the church for most of church history must be rejected as a false prophet. This warning about false prophets was heightened in this week's Torah portion where Moses returned to the subject. This time, he spoke not of prophets in general, but he spoke of a future eschatological prophet like himself. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. Deuteronomy 18.15 Opposite this end times prophet like Moses, the people could anticipate the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously. But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which, he, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. Deuteronomy 18.20 The prophet who speaks a word presumptuously sounds like the Antichrist figure depicted in the book of Daniel as a little horn with a mouth uttering great boasts. Daniel 7.8 He boasts presumptuously. Again, in Revelation 13, they said, Who is like the beast and who can wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. Revelation 13, 4 through 6. These descriptions, it seems to me, can be traced back to our Torah portion, which depicts a false prophet opposite the prophet like Moses, whom the apostles identify with the Messiah. If the prophet like Moses is to be understood as the Messiah, then the false prophet who speaks a word presumptuously should be understood as his foil, the false Messiah. The Messiah is not just a prophet, he is also a king. The title Mashiach, Messiah, literally means anointed one, but it's idiomatic for the king. Likewise, the Antichrist is a false king. In this week's Torah portion, we find that God requires the king of Israel, 
to conduct himself under the rule of law. He is not above the authority of the Torah. He must be completely subject to the Torah. This rule applies to all the kings of Israel and also to the Messiah. If the Messiah is the king of Israel, he must also be subject to the Torah. He is required to write out his own personal copy of the entire Torah and to keep it with him always. Deuteronomy 17, 18 through 19 says, Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom. He shall write for himself a copy of this Torah on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this Torah and these statutes. This rule ensured that the king himself submitted to the Torah and did not become a despot without accountability or boundary, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen. Deuteronomy 17.20 The obligation of writing a copy of the Torah for himself reminded the king that he is not above God's law, even if he is the Messiah. In God's economy, the Torah functions as the constitution over Israel's government. No one is above God's Torah because no one is above God. His word has the final authority, and even the king may not transgress it. And this explains why we find it so significant that Yeshua of Nazareth, foreseeing the future slander to be spoken about him, so emphatically insisted that he did not come to transgress or abolish the Torah, but rather to fulfill it, that is, to obey it. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill, for I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the Torah until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, 17 through 19. The Midrash Rabbah transmits a legend about King Solomon, which provides context for Yeshua's emphatic words. According to a legend recorded in the Midrash, Solomon tried to change the smallest letter in the Torah to escape its authority. While copying the Torah, Solomon came to the words, He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away. Deuteronomy 17.17 He altered the smallest letter by changing the yod from the word yirbeh, he shall not multiply, into an aleph. The verse no longer forbade the king from multiplying wives. Instead, it became a statement implying that multiplication of wives will not have the effect of leading the king's heart astray. The deleted letter complained to Hashem, Behold, Solomon has now arisen and abolished one letter. Who knows? Today he has abolished one letter. Tomorrow he will abolish another until the whole Torah will be nullified. The Holy One, blessed be he, replied, Solomon and a thousand like him will pass away, but the smallest stroke will not be erased from you. Exodus Rabbah
I believe Yeshua alluded to the legend when he said, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the Torah. This story illustrates my point about the depiction of Jesus foisted upon us by church tradition and replacement theology. When it comes to determining who the true Messiah is, the Torah provides an important litmus test. Obedience to the Torah and affirmation of the Torah's authority is one of the criteria that the Messiah must meet, one of the criteria for a would-be king of Israel. Therefore, a Messiah who comes abolishing the Torah and the commandments can rightly be identified as a false Messiah. It's important to clarify, I'm not implying that our brothers and sisters in the various churches of the world are worshipping Antichrist and paying obeisance to the beast through their adoration of Jesus. On the contrary, the true Messiah is proclaimed in every people and in every language, wherever the Bible is taught. But there is something rotten in Denmark and everywhere else. The theological and ideological description of the type of Christ proclaimed by replacement theology matches that of the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, the son of lawlessness. This is the apostasy the apostles warned us about. This is the spirit of Antichrist John said was already at work in his day. Due to some severe and tragic misinterpretations of the New Testament, Christian theology about Jesus, the Torah, and the Jewish people is preparing the way for Antichrist, just as surely as John the Immerser prepared the way in the wilderness for the true Messiah. With your permission, I would like to illustrate the point with another Jewish legend about King Solomon. It's an old and well-known folk tale told in various sources, including Tractate Gittin of the Babylonian Talmud. Think of it as an ancient Jewish children's story, or think of it as the type of Jewish myths that Paul warned Titus to avoid. My version of the story combines a few sources, but the main points of the story are consistent across the sources. I believe that this legend was already in common circulation before the days of the apostles and would have been known to Yeshua and the disciples. As King Solomon prepared to build the temple, he realized that he was not to use iron tools to cut the stones. Exodus 20:25, 1 Kings 6:7. He inquired of his wise counselor, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and Benaiah explained that there was a certain wondrous worm which could chew its way through solid stone and split the blocks, but he did not know where Solomon could find a specimen. According to Jewish legend, Solomon was a powerful exorcist. The spirits greatly feared him, and he forced them to, do his, to perform his will under his command. So he interrogated them, where can I find this remarkable worm that splits stones? They said, we do not know, but we know someone who does. You need to ask Asmodeus, the prince of the demons. Solomon fashioned a heavy chain affixed with a signet ring inscribed with the name of God. He gave the chain and the ring to Benaiah and sent him out to find Asmodeus. 
Benaiah found the cistern where the prince of the demons daily slaked his thirst. He cleverly filled the cistern with wine. Then he waited until Asmodeus came, drank the wine, and passed out from intoxication. When the prince of demons awoke, he found himself bound in a heavy chain, sealed and locked with a signet ring bearing God's holy name. Though he thrashed about, he could not escape. Benaiah led him back to Jerusalem, where he provided King Solomon with the whereabouts of the wondrous stone-splitting worm. King Solomon did not release the prince of the demons. Instead, he interrogated him further, learning all that he could about the spiritual world and how to prevail against such creatures as himself. After some time, Solomon asked, What is it that makes angels and demons more powerful than human beings? Asmodeus replied, I cannot show you while I remain in these chains. Release me and I will show you. Solomon released him, and the monster immediately swallowed up the king and spat him out hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem. The wretched fiend took the ring that had bound him and cast it into the depths of the ocean. Then he transformed himself to appear to everyone as King Solomon. He looked exactly like the king, sounded like the king, and wore the king's own royal garments. He took his seat on the throne of King Solomon and took command over Jerusalem. Meanwhile, Solomon wandered from place to place, ragged and half-crazed, begging for food and drink. Everywhere he went, he protested, Don't you recognize me? I'm King Solomon! Most people laughed. They said, Solomon is on his throne in Jerusalem. Some showed kindness to the madman. Others were cruel and drove him away. A few, however, took him seriously. And they brought a report about the madman to the sages of the Sanhedrin. But the rabbi said, Every madman claims to be the king. Eventually, Solomon found a job as a cook working in the palace kitchen of the king of Ammon. The king of Ammon had a daughter named Naamah. She fell in love with the cook, and she believed his story. When her father found out about the relationship, he forbade his daughter and threatened Solomon. Naamah brought Solomon a fresh caught fish to prepare, and in its belly he found the signet ring. Meanwhile, in Jerusalem, the members of the Sanhedrin began to wonder if the madman's story might be true. They noticed that King Solomon behaved strangely and not in the manner of a godly king. They asked his wives if they had noticed anything unusual, and they all reported that Solomon was not himself. He conducted himself in transgression of the Torah's laws of sexual purity. The Sanhedrin realized what had happened. They sent a message to the king of Ammon, instructing him to send the cook to Jerusalem. When Solomon arrived in Jerusalem, he used the ring to recapture Asmodeus and chain him up again. Then he took his throne. He married Naamah, the Ammonitess. He invited the king of Ammon and all those who had doubted him to attend the wedding. A folktale like this usually has a moral to the story. I believe the master incorporated this story into a parable about the kingdom as Solomon took his throne and was in a position to reward those who had shown him kindness and to punish those who had not. He will sit on his glorious throne. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? Matthew twenty-five thirty-one to 39 Let's consider another aspect of the story. On a deeper level, this old Jewish folktale about the son of David, contrasts the real king against a false king who looks just like the real king. The only way that the people were able to tell the difference between the real King Solomon and the false King Solomon was that the false king did not walk according to the commandments of the Torah. When considered from that perspective, the story becomes a potent warning about Antichrist. Here is a false son of David who has seated himself on the throne of David, while the true son of David is absent from Jerusalem in this age of exile. And who is this false son of David? He is a devil, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders and with all the deception of wickedness, 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 and 10. Like the beast and the false prophet in Revelation who perform signs and wonders to deceive the earth, Paul calls him the son of destruction, Apollyon. The book of Revelation says, They have a king over them, the angel of the abyss, and his name is Abaddon, and in the Greek he has the name Apollyon, Revelation 9.11. This is the warning. Something diabolical has taken the throne of our master Yeshua, posing to be him. But, in fact, this deceiver opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God, 2 Thessalonians 2, 4. By their fruits you will know them. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. He is the man of lawlessness, the one who teaches against the Torah and teaches Israel to forsake the Torah. I have delved deeply into this mythological apocalypticism to show you why we are doing what it is that we do at Beth Emmanuel. Our labor is for the real Yeshua of Nazareth. We are like the advocates of Solomon who reported to the Sanhedrin, that's not the real king on the throne. That's not the real Yeshua. We are working to unseat the pretender from the throne of David in keeping with the prayer that we offer every Sabbath over the reading of the Haftarah. We pray, gladden us, O Lord our God, with your servant Elijah the prophet and with the kingdom of the house of David, your Messiah, 
May he come soon and make our hearts rejoice. Do not let strangers be seated on his throne. And do not let others inherit his glory any longer. For you swore to him by your holy name that his lamp would never be extinguished. Find rest for your soul.